Hello and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas in Washington. I've been covering politics for a long time, but after many years, I still don't understand why Congress is so incompetent, hapless even, often unresponsive to real people's needs. I want to understand what's going on, not the politics of it, but the deep basis for this incapacity to effectively govern. What's wrong with Congress? Well, many things, money washing over the Capitol like a tsunami, members of Congress so ideological they can't even think straight, and frankly, more than a few members who absolutely hate the federal government. They're not in Washington to govern, but to obstruct the people's business. It's enough to ask King Charles to take us back. Well, okay, not really, but if you look at the latest congressional approval ratings, it's pretty clear they're down to friends and family as supporters. So let's get to the bottom of this. Today I speak with Kevin Kosar. He's one of the country's leading experts on Congress. Kosar is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. It's a big, super important, big time think tank here in DC where he specializes in all things Congress. Kosar has written extensively about the subject. His latest book is Congress Overwhelmed, the Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. I'm thinking he's my guy. If anyone can answer the question, what is wrong with Congress? It's my guess. Here's my conversation with Kevin Kosar. Kevin Kosar, welcome to The X-Ray. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. I, I think most Americans look at stuff coming out of Washington, in particular Congress, and they're scratching their heads, right? Because if we ran our own lives like Congress runs Congress, we'd never get anything done. We failed constantly. We'd be fighting with our neighbors. Well, what's wrong with Congress? Uh, well, where to begin? Uh, <laughs> we could start with its basic design in the most abstract way of putting it, we're asking 535 people from very diverse districts and states to come hang out under an ornate dome and cooperate, and to cooperate on things of national concern. As somebody who has a sizable family, I can tell you that I often find it difficult to get six people to cooperate. Right. Uh, so you got 535 people by design, it's difficult. And because, you know, mm -hmm. we're not a parliamentary system, we split it into a House and a Senate with different state representation in one and district representation in another. That also does not structure it to kind of easily reaching consensus and easily kind of moving goods through the process, getting laws passed, doing oversight, that sort of thing. Um, but beyond the kind of design limitations, Right now, Congress is really lacking in capacity. Hmm. All organizations, if they're going to do the things that are expected of them, really have to have the capacity to do them. And it's my argument and the argument of uh, many others that the capacity is just lacking. What do you mean by capacity for someone who's not uh, in political science? What, what does that mean? Yeah, well... Um, capacity, the capability. Well, where's the capability of any organization, whether it's a garage rock band or a big corporation or Congress? Well, it's in things like technology. Do you have good technology that helps you prioritize tasks, organize, carry things out? 
it's people. People are a huge capacity matter. Do you have enough people? Do you have people with the right skill set? It's internal structure. That's another important factor. Are you as an organization set up in a way that facilitates getting work done? Um, and overall, it's incentives. Are you structured as an organization to do the things that are expected of you? And when you look at Congress, the answer is frequently not even close. But is it wrong to assume that there were other periods in time where Congress was much more functional? And this is, I know it's a very unique situation, but in the 1930s, when FDR was pushing uh, his program forward, Congress approved a whole set of really transformative laws and, and created new structures and institutions and, and tried to, not always successfully, obviously, but tried to resolve some fundamental issues uh, of the Great Depression and everything that came around it. What's different now? What's changed? I mean, still people, still the Congress. Why is it now, on a, aside from naming a few post offices every once in a while? But let me give you an example. So there's a new Republican majority in, in the House of Representatives. They've now spent the first few months in office passing uh, message bills, bills that will never become laws, that are just messages. They, they have no pretense it's governing. It has no functional effect on government because the Democratic controlled Senate will not pass them. How is that different? I mean, is that, has that always happened? Is that always this kind of useless torching of the American uh, <laughs> governing energy? Is that, is that something that's always happened or is this kind of new? Yeah, I mean, t Congress has had kind of golden phases and I guess who would say bronze or some lesser <laughs> metal than that phase is. Um, and certainly I, I think that folks feel that right, you know, right now we've been a long bronze stretch. Um, you know, it's not surprising. That, Possibly styrofoam, I think, yeah, at this stage. Uh, uh, that's, you know, something like between 10 and 30% of Americans approve of the job mm -hmm. Congress is doing. I mean, it's gone up and down just a little bit over the last 20 right. years. That's amazing. And yeah, from the perspective of a congressional capacity, the problem is that right now the job of Congress has gotten bigger and bigger while the capacity to do it has contracted. So let me give you two illustrations. Right now, there are approximately 180 executive branch and independent agencies of the federal government, 180. That's a lot of policymaking to oversee. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the number of congressional staff, and these are the people who help members of Congress and committees do that oversight, it's actually lower than it was in the 1980s. You've got fewer people who can oversee a government which is growing in size, growing in complexity. Um, that's a problem. And I think also important to note is that the, the incentive structure for legislators to govern has gotten out of whack. Um, it used to be the case from basically around 1950 until the early 1980s, that Democrats always had a majority. And Republicans never really believed the chance that they had a chance of being a majority. 
So their mindset was kind of go along to get along. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Congress, I should add, in the early 1970s, radically upped its capacity. So we had a brief period where like capacity was high and you basically had strong incentives for party cooperation. Well, those days are gone. Capacity has mm-hmm. lagged and the incentive structure is that basically each party is playing for the next election because each party thinks that they can either hold their majority or they can gain a majority. And, mm-hmm. you know, as a result, partisan control of the chamber, um, which means who gets to set uh, priorities for what gets done, that right. has gone back and forth from Democrats to Republicans uh, over the last 30 years at a pace that we have not seen since the late 19th century. Mm. You know, it's just, can you imagine an organization, like working at an organization where every two years your boss switches, right. the entire priority right. switch, <laughs> and the committees mm-hmm. you get to sit on, you know, everything gets moved around. Um, so it's a very volatile period, and that's made governance all the more difficult. And I think I'm not totally grasping the capacity uh, comment. Are you talking about staff? Is that what it is? You said in the 70s there was greater capacity. Oh, was that a function of yeah. uh, more staffers? Oh, so much was done in the 70s. I'm glad you asked. Um, what happened in the 1970s? Well, Congress, after getting pushed around by LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson as president, and then Richard Nixon, Congress put its foot down and said, we are the first branch. We have to invest in ourselves and restructure ourselves. So they passed a variety of laws that strengthened it as an institution. It, they created a new Congressional Budget Office to help them mm-hmm. with budgeting. They created a new budget process. They hired more staff. Uh, they rearranged some of their committees to reflect the changing times. They took the old Legislative Reference Service, this little outfit inside the Library of Congress, and they poured a bunch of money into it and turned it into the Congressional Research Service, a full-blown mm-hmm. think Which tank. Which you worked. Yeah. You worked there. I right? worked there yeah. for years. That serves Congress. They just put resources into the first branch and bulked mm-hmm. it up so that it could better do the job in front of it. Unfortunately, after that kind of spasm of investment and reform, Congress just has not much upgraded itself since that time. And it's been half century. So basically both parties here seem to be culpable, right? Uh, the lack mm-hmm. of capacity is something that could have been handled under either majority, either party's majority at any time. I, are you saying that there are no incentives to be a better Congress because ultimately we're in such a divided nation that the only thing voters, I mean, is the voters fault here? I guess fundamentally where they're rewarding members of Congress for how pugnacious they are, how, how, how much they scream and yell either on MSNBC or Fox News, uh, as opposed to what used to be the case, which was your congressman brought you some bacon, right? Mm-hmm. Brought a bridge and a road and a library or whatever it was. And that went away, uh, in, in this idea that somehow that was corrupt. Um, and now what? There's nothing to bring home, and therefore there's a disconnect between the voter and the member of Congress. Is that largely what's going on? Yeah, there is a bit of that happening. You know, I have this pet theory, and it's, it's rather a grim one, that yes, politics looks like it's getting worse and worse. Yes, governance looks like it's getting worse and worse. But in fact, the individual actors who are involved in this, these collective enterprise 
are getting better at their jobs. Mm. How so? Because the first job of a legislator is to get reelected. And legislators have become increasingly sophisticated in in figuring out what they need to do to get reelected. And so they have shedded a lot of the sort of things that they once thought were part of being a legislator, like, I don't know, being polite to others uh, who we work with, respecting longstanding congressional norms about like, hey, we just don't do this on the floor. Hey, Mm -hmm. we don't behave that way. Hey, this is how we interpret this rule. We don't, we don't twist it to mean something else. Um, that sort of stuff is just getting dropped, and legislators are increasingly finding that you, they can get reelected and often very uh, comfortably simply by um, striking poses. And you know, voters and vo- more and more seem to be getting sucked into kind of behaving like they're at kind of a, a world wrestling federation right. match. Where right. it's not about governing, it's about my side triumphing over the bad side. And is that because we're so fat and happy? It's the, you know, uh, in 1990, the U.S. global output, economic output was 25%. We're now in 2023, it's 25%, even though China has grown and other countries have grown. In other words, we're very successful as a country. Are Americans just used to success and just can't see that, in fact, we might be uh, careening off a cliff at any moment? Or what's your diagnosis of the voters? Yeah, well... Uh, on the one hand, we are a democratic republic, and the voice of the citizens ultimately are going to win out through their exercise of the vote. What concerns me is that elected officials, yes, they should be representative, yes, they should listen to constituents, but they should also try to guide constituents because mm-hmm. your average member of the public can be wrong. Like your average member of the public thinks that we spend a huge amount of money on foreign aid. Right. And they're like, you must slash it, you must slash it. Well, that's not actually factually true. You could slash it Mm -hmm. down to zero and it will make no difference as far as the deficit. Part of being an elected official is that you have to be a leader. You have to teach, you have to explain things. You have a responsibility to voters. Yes, it's okay to pander sometimes. You don't want to come off as a haughty know-it-all to people. (laughs) They're going to vote you Mm -hmm. out. But if you do nothing but pander, and you pander to kind of their worst instincts towards tribalism, demonization of others, helping them imagine that they can have a free lunch, that's a derogation of duty. But politicians have realized that they can get elected doing it. This makes me miss John McCain even more. Yeah, yeah. I mean... uh, and I think this, to some degree, also can you know, possibly flows from the competitiveness. Um, we have, it's really easy to get voted out of Congress. I mean, I think there's a popular misconception that, you know, everybody is like Charles Grassley. They've been there for decades and, you know, they will, mm-hmm. they'll be carried out before they get voted out. And that's, that's not really true, particularly in the House of Representatives. Turnover is very frequent. Nancy Pelosi right. is an exception to the rule. And, you know, members feel the pressure and because they feel the pressure, the the desire to pander and thanks to outside money flowing into races, you're constantly on the defensive if you want to keep your job. 
you mentioned money. What do you think has been the transformation of money in politics? Uh, you know, we went from McCain, Feingold, and uh, those rules that sought to limit the influence of money in elections to then Citizens United, which essentially opened the floodgates for dark money investments. And basically any billionaire in the U.S. can buy their own member of Congress, possibly a senator or two. When you study the impact of money, what do you conclude? Money has exploited particularly the primaries process. Uh, you know, we have these primary elections, the Democrats hold them, the Republicans hold them. They're typically low turnout. They're not held in November. They're held at a different time of year. Voters mm -hmm. don't associate that time of year with voting and they don't show up. Something like only one in five voters tends to vote in a primary for a member of Congress. The people who do show up tend to be the people who are most intense politically. And the money that is pouring in is all about um, manipulating those people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, anybody who wants to get to Congress has to get through the primary. And surviving a primary means surviving onslaughts of dark money and other money being dumped into your race at the last minute that's going to tar you one way or another or prop up somebody else. I mean, it's gotten even so crazy and such a gamed situation that, you know, we've got the parties who are sometimes giving money, like Democrats gave money to Republicans, extreme Republicans, right. in the hopes that they would beat more moderate Republicans who would then lose in the general. So you got Democrats yeah. giving money to Republicans, Republicans giving money to Democrats, all to manipulate this primary process. It's a problem. And I think that's part of when you think about congressional capacity and resetting legislators' incentives, you got to th start talking about thinking of, you know, replacing the primaries with something better. Like what? Well, you know, right now they're kind of two, you know, they're, they're separate party races. Uh, so I think in some places, you know, per particularly purpler states, it might be advisable to have an open primary. The jungle primary mechanism. Something, that, something like that. Like California, you mean? Yeah. I think the key is you got to have a, you got to have, the state's got to be purple because if you do that in a hard red state, you're just going to get only people on the Republican Party there. And if you do it in a hard, yeah. hard left state, you're going to get the same sort of thing. So it's going to depend where. Uh, I think, you know, certainly things like ranked choice voting, you know, the final five system, the idea that you run an, you know, an open primary and then you have a general election with the final, the five most popular candidates moving forward mm -hmm. and then being voted on a ranking basis. Certainly that could change the incentives. But the problem there, right, is that obviously the politicians are completely vested in this game, which they think they can dominate to be elected. So the incentives aren't really there, right, for them to change the system that benefits them. Let me ask you something, because, you know, this is starting to sound less of an interview and more of a tragedy we're describing here. Uh, what's the solution if you were uh, suddenly empowered to be emperor of, uh, of the American empire for a day or so? What would you do? What would be the three reforms that you think could solve this problem? Oh, boy, the primary problem or the or the Congress problem? Well, the, the, I think the governance problem, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the idea that, uh, well, I, you know, I was fascinated. I'm going to inter interrupt my own question and you in the process. When you were describing the lack of capacity, it reminded me so much of the uh, final period of the Roman Republic where the governing system, which was originally conceived for a city and then eventually a multi-city polity in Italy, 
And then once provinces started to be added to this polity, it, it became a completely inefficient and completely irrational system, which led to, I'm <laughs> simplifying this to the most ridiculous possible way, but eventually opened the door, right, for the strong man to step in, whether it was the strong man uh, in terms of a council or eventually uh, uh, the dictator and eventually the emperor, right? Is that what you're also describing, that the complexity of the American empire, for the lack of a better word, is such that the governing system has not caught up to it? Um, and there for what do we do about it? Because we're not going to uh, suddenly withdraw from Europe and Japan and Korea and, and, you know, Somalia and everywhere else where the U.S. interests are so critical uh, and, and defended by American arms and so forth. Yeah, no, I do. I do think that there is a, a tendency, you know, certainly in some quarters on the right to say that, well, you know, we can improve governance by if we just shrink the government's responsibilities down to very few then it'll be no problem. Well, good luck with that. Um, right. You know, the public tends to like government. Um, and, you know, as you note, our interests as a nation are bound up with various commitments we have overseas, trade, military, otherwise. And so that's kind of a fantasy. So certainly bolstering Congress's capacity is absolutely key. I think a lot of the legislative procedures that are used are are so complex, so abstruse, uh, and so kind of useless for fostering deliberation. And mostly they right. exist now to create veto points where people can gum mm -hmm. up the works and then claim victory for stopping something. I think those need to be completely rethought. I do think elections are going to have to be rethought so that people coming to Congress, particularly those who serve in the House, do not feel beholden to a small wing of one party or the other. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's that's absolutely key. Um, you know, I think we Americans, uh, members of the public, also are to some degree falling down our job. I think we have gotten very comfortable with the idea that if we want things to get better in this country through governmental action, we should turn our eyes to the president. And mm -hmm. we've become kind of fetishist for executive figures. And I think that that leads down a dangerous path. That's where you can get a Not Caesar that. or something like that. That's right. And, you know, we, you know, whether it's the erosion of civics education or what, we really just need to kind of wrap our heads a little bit better around the idea that we are supposed to be a representative democracy where the people actually have a voice. And as such, you've got to have a Congress that is going to be cacophonous, messy, but ultimately a place where policy gets made. Quit looking for presidents to drop executive orders on immigration and other hot button Anything, issues. Everything, yeah. And, and there seems to be a moral dimension here as well, right? If, if you're an elected official, you're one of 535 people at the very top of the governing structure of a country of 340 million. It's just an tremendous responsibility. And then to be completely feckless in some cases, and, and you know, one, I'm not even going to mention him because he was such a loser, really. But that congressman who said, I'm not here to legislate. I'm, I have a PR department. I mean, like just completely disgusting lack of moral clarity as to what you're doing there. How do you fix the moral dimension of it? Yeah, I mean, that's on voters. I mean, you, you, you get what you vote for. And yeah, mm -hmm. I've, I've railed against the primary system, which allows, you know, kind of a minority of a minority to pick the, the final candidates that we all get to select. But people, you know, have to realize that you're going to get 
rotten eggs in our legislature unless you're willing yeah. to vote against them. And if that means crossing party lines, do it because character matters. Character matters. We all know it. We just have to remember it. Yeah. Well, uh, two final questions. Um, first off, are, are you optimistic that uh, we can improve the system or does it have to completely break down and collapse before it can be rebuilt? Uh, I am optimistic and I'm optimistic um, by nature. Uh, I'm optimistic because there are various um, reforms, both electoral and congressional reforms that have been making, you know, getting enacted. Uh, mm. You know, Congress, many people don't even know, had for a select committee on the modernization of Congress for three years, which was mm. doing all sorts of stuff to try to improve the institution, particularly the House, so that it would uh, it would function better. That's good. Um, Did they succeed in any way? Yeah. One of the things that they really focused heavily upon was staff turnover. You know, again, we like to think that the people who are running Congress are primarily the elected officials who we pulled the lever for, but they are supported by a huge, a sizable number of staff mm -hmm. who prepare them for hearings, who answer constituent requests uh, and mail, who help them draft bills, who research for them. I mean, these people are so critical to a legislator's functioning. And the problem is the turnover amongst them has been extremely high. It's because yeah. the job is miserable, the pay is lousy, the benefits are crummy, yeah. the working conditions, the technology, everything. Well, Select Committee yeah. on the Modernization of Congress got things through that has made the position more attractive so people can stay longer and do better. Well, plus a staffer making X uh, in Congress can cross the street, literally to K Street, and uh, make uh, X times two uh, by essentially uh, selling it to the highest bidder, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, once a staffer gets a couple years of experience, they face very strong incentives to go to the private sector where they will earn more. They also mm -hmm. face strong incentives to go work for the executive branch because they can do the same job over there for higher pay and also not have to deal mm -hmm. with the crazy congressional schedule so they can maybe settle right. down and have a family. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a radical idea. Okay, Kevin, final question. I think this is the critical question. Uh, Burgundy or Bordeaux? Ooh, I would say Bordeaux. Why? Um, I've had so many remarkable Bordeaux. I was introduced to Bordeaux as a poor graduate student in New York City mm. before I was introduced <laughs> to Burgundy. So that charm got to me first. Um, and, uh, you know, I remember at least a couple of the Bordeaux I tasted had these remarkable mix of cedar notes and blueberry. And I remember just being astonished. And I, that mm -hmm. maybe I'm not giving Burgundy the shake that it deserves, but Bordeaux impressed me right. so quickly. All right. Well, I like a Renaissance man uh, analyzing uh, and thinking about Congress. So, Kevin Kosar, thank you so much for joining the X-Ray today. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. As former VP and Senator Al Gore curiously observed, quote, a zebra does not change its spots, unquote which I think fairly captures our feelings about Congress. In a recent statistical poll, 81% of Americans disapproved of Congress, while only 16% of Americans approved. It's a dark picture of broken promises, diminished expectations, and deep disappointment. It's also the reason why so many Americans tune out politics. I mean, why bother? 
But of course, this is exactly the wrong thing to do. Unwatched and unchallenged by the people, Congress will never change its zero spots. And that's a problem for you and me and the future of this nation. I want to thank Kevin Kosar for his analysis of the rot on Capitol Hill. And I want to thank the Issue One production team, Nicole Legacy, Sydney Richards, and Renee Pineda. And I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Spuelas in Washington. For more information on this podcast, check out thexray.org and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray with Fernando Espuelas is an editorially independent production of Issue 1.